Now, this is part of a series we've been going on, and we're going into chapter 5 here, so let's continue reading. Um, Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For once you were, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Ephesus, like much of the Roman world, as you can imagine, was a highly sensualized and secularized society. You know, married, married men were known to have their mistresses. Uh, there was definitely a lot of sexual harassment and abuse of servants and employees. And, and uh, there was all sorts of liaisons going on amongst the norm. And, and it was even used in the most sacred settings as well. Um, if you went to worship at the Temple of Artemis or many of the other 50-odd deities, you would employ religious people of the night to help with your act of worship for those settings. Notice I'm picking the wrong words carefully because of the young audience. A lot of this was actually spoken, spoken about openly um, and... Uh, <laughs> I will win. (laughs) All of this was spoken openly and with humor, like it was nothing. Um, The ability to talk in a dirty and lewd fashion and employ double entendres and all that sort of stuff was actually considered witty and smart, hearty conversation. It was actually the um, uh, Aristotle, the ancient philosopher, who understood this to be a virtue and taught people as such. Um, you know, he just called it harmless, witty banter. If you can't talk, if you can't use double talk and dirty talk, well, you're probably just not a smart person in a conversation. Weird. Safe to say in that day, the Me Too movement wouldn't have stood a chance. And if they weren't religious, many still had an item of worship. Their wealth the things they were being constantly driven to amass. Now, the Jews were known to be quite weary, rightly so, of the excesses of the Gentile world. 
Uh, there was actually written rules uh, for, for gen, for in, in Gentile spaces for the Jews that Jewish women were never to be alone with a Gentile man, someone who wasn't a Jew. Because quite frankly, that man could simply not be trusted. Those are the standards in play for the, the Jewish women of the day. But the church in and around Ephesus was not made up of a majority Jewish community. They came from the society, not of Moses, but of Aristotle. They came from the group that didn't see the harm in all that lewdness and promiscuity. And Paul is reminding these people that in Christ, there is a line that one simply doesn't cross anymore. Neither do they loiter as close to it as they possibly can get. Instead, Paul tells these people to not even add a hint of these things to who they now are. In other words, neither the watching pagan community nor the community of believers are to see any evidence of these things being done in our midst. There shouldn't even be the slightest hint that these things are occurring. Now, this is not a call to discretion or to do these things on the sly. We can't do these things quietly. This is a call to not be anywhere near these things at all. We're not initiating the dirty jokes at the office party or around the kegs at the local pub. We aren't making the suggestive comments about other people we consider attractive. We don't have a secret stash of magazines hidden around the house. Our browser history is clean. Our bedroom activity is pure. And in the society we live in today, I say these things equally to both men and women, given the way life has become. And in equal emphatic force here, we learn that our spending habits and our conduct with finance and possessions is also to be clearly different about us as well. We're modest in our own dealings. We're hilariously, ridiculously generous towards others. And we're stewards and we are conduits of the things that are actually clearly designated gods. In that setting, we're not hoarders. We're not bigger barn builders. We're not interest gatherers. Because that mindset has the potential to take us into idolatrous territory. We are blessed to be a blessing. That is the Christian mindset. A big bank account and a property portfolio, particularly amongst the house of God, may not necessarily be good stewardship. In fact, there's potential for that to be a poor testimony and a blockage to further blessing. Big numbers on a bank statement doesn't bless anyone. A quick look on social media at how the world sees this reveals this to be true, particularly in the dealings of the church and its finances. All that hoarding of blessing actually robs us of the ability to show Paul's preferred expression. Verse 4, instead of all this bad talk and instead of all this bad living, be known for thanksgiving. If we are no longer being blessed, if we've got our barns full and we're going on building bigger ones, 
we're actually no longer giving thanks. God gets no more glory from us other than a brag. Paul's primary concern in this passage is that the church be distinctly different to the world who is watching them really carefully. There is to be no hint of these things among the people of Christ's kingdom community. And Paul, in the way he words this, he says it this way, not now, and in terms of future inheritance, not ever. And this is not because we're good at hiding it. But it's because we are good at addressing it. And we address it well because in Christ we are dramatically transformed and empowered people. Our spiritual DNA is different in Christ. Verse 8 tells us that we were once darkness and now we are light. This doesn't say we were once sort of around darkness or sort of influenced by darkness or wrapped up in darkness or any of that sort of stuff. No, 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 it said that we were darkness. I've heard thousands of testimonies over 30 years of Christianity that, that have told about people's uh, conversion journey. I've heard lots of stories told. I've heard the hardcore ones. My very first pastor was one of those people. He was a drug runner. He was, he was an American pastor living in Dandenong, leading a church, planting a, a brand new church. And, and he used to, he, you know, he tells the story how he would smuggle drugs from South America into North America all the time. And then Jesus radically captured him. And here I am serving the Lord. You got lots and lots of stories like that. And even in this room, even in my own life, there are places where God abruptly interrupted our life and come in and said, I want you, I'm selecting you, follow me. Lots of those great testimonies out there and they're a blessing. I've also had others on the opposite end. I was a good person, coming from a good family, doing my own thing. And then I went to church, Jesus kind of made sense, now my life is a little bit better than it was. Now, I'm all for the, the, the glorifying stories. My father was a Christian and he instilled his faith into me and I followed Jesus. His grandfather, my grandfather, instilled those values into my father. My great-great-grandfather instilled those values down. And I am fourth, or fifth, sixth generation believer in Jesus. I've got a story to tell of God's faithfulness through, a generation, through the generations. That's an amazing testimony to tell. Others, I was completely and utterly lost and Jesus captured me from the... You know, a friend of mine actually posted this week, tell me your stories of how you found faith. And the amount of first generation, you know, brand new believers who were telling their stories in that, including myself and Jen. You know, coming to faith because a random stranger found me on the street because I had zero Christian friends or if I did, they were silent about their faith. Scary fact. There's all these amazing things, but there's also those other ones where we kind of went, yeah, I'm just a good person. Jesus got me. It makes sense. Sometimes they come across like they were simply a good person who just got better as a Christian. But the scriptures here tell us that that's an illusion. 
We are not just the good person who got better. If you want to be that, don't join the church, join the Freemasons. That's their motto, making good men better. But it's not the Christian story. Outside of Christ, Paul writes here that you were, I was, darkness. Chapter 2 says that we were dead in sin. I was dead and I was in darkness. I was dead and I was darkness. Things were far more dire in my life than I sometimes give God credit for here. Sometimes I play down what it is he actually, what it is I was actually saved from. But Paul says, no, 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 you were dead and you are darkness. Jesus didn't get a bargain when he purchased us with his blood. We were not good people who kind of strayed. We were by our very nature dark and dead. Now, we say that not to hammer people down, but to capture the other half of that. In Christ, we are light. I love how Dale, without consultation, has actually used the same verse I was going to quote here. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5. If this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we live in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. God is light. In other words, there is a distinct absence of evil in all that he is and all that he does. And we are invited to be children of light through Christ. This is a significant change in who we become. If we identify as a Christian then we learn to, and we lean into this idea of living as light, not as darkness. Light is the absence of evil things. And if that's the case, then immoral and idolatrous conduct in our thought and in our speech, all these things, these have no part of that because it's not who we are anymore. It's, not who long, it's no longer who you are, and it's no longer who we are as well. That's a key thing to take out of this as well. Being people of light creates a setting where community transparency and community accountability become the culture. That's what Paul is referring to when he calls us to expose the, the deeds of darkness here. This is us internally holding ourselves accountable in the matters that Paul lays out here. We hold each other accountable for our financial outlook, for our moral outlook, for the way we talk, for the way we conduct ourselves, for the, the speech, for the, you know, when, you know, when me and, and Simon and, and a few other, and someone else was at the, at, at watching the footy last night down at Jen's having a dinner and watching the footy, you know, we could have looked at each other. If the conversation went south real fast, any one of us at that table could have and would have spoken up and gone, that's not who we are. 
We hold ourselves internally accountable for what we are called to be as people of light because the world around us is watching and expects to see light in us, not darkness. If we live as light in that way, the world who is watching us is able to glorify God because of our conduct, because of our speech. I'm actually going to come to a, a bit of a, a wind-up point here, and I want to leave you with three concepts here, three Bs. As in, be this, be that, be that. Three Bs out of this passage that you can take away with us today. First one is obvious, and we've spoken about it already. Be light. Be light. This is what you, are, you and I and we are. We've been given a whole different outlook and a different identity in Christ, so walk in that light, walk in that way, walk in who we are. Not in the way of death and darkness that our old life was. As we look at chapter 4 and 5, we see that there is a, a contrast. Here's how the pagans live. Here's what Aristotle says life is all about. Here's what the, the, the philosophers say. Here's what religion says. Here's what Artemis says. And here's what Jesus says. Live like Jesus. In all that we do and all that we say. Verses 15 and six, 16 give us this. Be wise. Be light. Now be wise. Be wise. We're called to wise living. And Paul describes wise living as making the most of every opportunity in these evil days we're living. In this verse, we are reminded that we live in the age that is both sinful and finite. This age we live in has a short timetable, and Jesus will return at the end of it. There used to be an old slogan uh, spray-painted around Melbourne and graffiti probably 20 years ago. When we were living, I was living in Melbourne, I remember just being spray-painted everywhere. It was weird. No bumper stickers, spray-paint. Jesus is coming soon. Everyone look busy. Jesus is coming soon, everyone look busy. Now, that's either some really full-on dark graffiti, uh, like, you know, guerrilla marketing from Christians, or it was actually just a, a, a take on it from the world around us, but the phrase is kind of correct. Jesus said this in various ways in his parables. I will return. So, disciple, be active. Be sober, be vigilant, be pure, be awake, be faithful, be productive, be ready. Here, Paul adds one more. The days are ending. Make the most of what we have now that we are light and be wise in and with the time we are in. And finally, so we have be light, be wise. And this third one, be filled. Paul calls us here to get rid of senseless, wasteful things, like getting drunk on wine. The word debauchery used in the passage here actually better translates as senseless waste. Ephesus is believed to have had a social problem of alcoholism. 
It was heavily used in worship in some of the cults, um, and it was copiously used in Roman gatherings. And because there was pretty much no fridges around, things fermented pretty quickly. So it was a prevalent problem all around the place. Add to that religion that looked for a euphoric expression, add for a, yeah, and people that were highly centralized looking for that euphoric element, it makes sense that alcohol would play a, a big role in society and in all things. But Paul laments this as a wasteful approach to living, particularly for believers. And instead, he calls us to be filled with the Spirit. This is a group that has already been assurance that the Spirit is a deposit of what is to come. Their salvation revolves around the presence of the Spirit. But this, like we see in many congregations even today, could simply be reduced to something cognitive, devoid of anything that would look like encounter. We remember earlier that there is a prophetic gift given to the church. Paul's already talked about it in Ephesians 4. And part of that is for encounter to be part of the Christian expression. There is a sense here that the Christian is to be walking in a continual sense of knowing the Spirit's presence in their life. It's not just something we talk about as an idea, oh yeah, the Spirit's around, He's part of my salvation, that's all cool. No, it's actually a reality that we walk in and a, and a tangible understanding that we operate in here. This is a little bit of temple talk here when Paul talks about it. In chapter 2, he reminds us that we are being built together to become a dwelling place by which God lives by His Spirit. As we are continually filled with the Spirit, the senseless waste gives way to purposeful presence. Senseless waste gives way to personal presence. Purposeful presence. And this has a communal expression. For the last century or so, we've been enamored with this whole personal salvation deal. And quite often forgotten about the community element of that. But it's clear in this passage that even with the work of the Spirit, there's community in action. It says this, be filled with the Spirit by speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs in the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All along this particular passage, we've seen Christian instruction on how the Christian operates in community. In chapter 4, we step up by pursuing unity and we minister in strength from that ordained place together. You can't do unity flying solo or from our couches. We explore the journey of putting on our new self in a community setting. In community, we pursue things like truth, holiness, calmness, generosity, clean talk, compassion, kindness, forgiveness. Together, we strive to not grieve the Spirit. Together, we dwell together in harmony together and we bring joy to the Spirit that way. 
In community, we walk the way of love. In community, we pursue moral purity and we bravely address other unbecoming things in our midst. We hold each other accountable about the things we're amassing or hoarding and about our moral example to the world around us. We look at each other and go, are we being what the world is expecting the Christian to be? In community, we choose not to partner or share in common with darkness and instead we willingly fellowship in light. In community, we redeem the time. And in community, we encounter the purposeful, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Part of that encounter is our ministry with others, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and utterances, engaging in expressions of praise and thankfulness together from our hearts. This is stuff that we do together in a community thing. We build each other up with this. And these are the things we're to be known for in the world around us also. So be light. Be wise. Be filled. And do these things in community. Now I believe the Lord is challenging us in a few key ways this morning. And um, I wonder if we can just be ready to, to work with the leading of Jesus in our lives in, the, in these next few minutes. Let me ask you deeply a deep question here. Are we living as light or darkness right now? Are we living as light or darkness? Who are we? Who are you? What, are, what is your life reflecting here? What DNA are you exhibiting? As you look in the mirror, as you consider what the Spirit is doing in your life, and also as the world perceives you to be also. Are we redeeming the time? And this is a big one for us, I think, at the moment. This pandemic has kind of sidelined us for a little bit, as you can imagine, right? It's, it's fair to say, the world has been sidelined. We've all sort of had to stop, stay home, do the things that the experts have told us to do, and I'm all for that. But I believe the time is coming where we need to shake off the slumber and the dressing gowns and the hiding away and the screens. And actually begin to actually engage with what the Lord is actually doing in this new time. Right now, there is a spiritual reaching out going on. And if we hide in our lounge rooms, we kind of lose sight of what Jesus is actually doing in the greater picture right now. Every weekend, since we've opened these doors to larger groups, Jesus has walked into the foyer. And I believe he will continue to do so tangibly. A couple of weeks ago, he was a homeless guy who got some breakfast from a charitable brother here and we helped him with a room for the night. Last week, he was a young indigenous gentleman needing some food for his family. That family has reached out to us three times this year so far. Twice in this pandemic. In the next few weeks... 
Jesus will be children needing instruction as we kick up our kids' ministries. July 26. I believe Jesus is going to walk in our foyer week in, week out from here on in. He's going to turn up in the wake of this pandemic uh, and the economic struggle it's been for some. He'll be the domestic abuse victim who needs help after the home front has exacerbated things in the light of what's been done. Everyone's stuck together and things got worse. He'll be the parent who needs a food hamper. He'll be the person who can't afford to pay their rent and has, has fallen on hard times. He'll be the person who has lost their job. He'll be the person who is depressed or feeling the pinch of being isolated from family. All my family's interstate and I can't see them and I'm lost. I'm depressed because I, I can't see a, a way out from where I'm at right now. I'm, I'm in I'm, my life. If the world is in recession right now, I'm in depression. Jesus is going to walk in our foyer. The minute the cars ended up in our front doorstep, the minute there were cars parked, people have come in. They've gone, I see the lights on. I see the church sign on the front. And that's all I need to walk in to find what I need. Paul quotes a first century hymn here. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead. Let Christ shine on you. It's time for the church to wake again. When it's safe, when you're confident and feeling okay, come out. I'm not preempting medical advice here. I'm simply saying, you know, we are, you know, as we know that we are safe, if you're vulnerable, please do the right thing. But some of us, the Lord is saying it's time to rise up. It's time for the church to be awake, to redeem the time. Because the time is getting shorter, friends. And are we being filled? This season has brought some of us, even in the Christian world, to a place like it feels like a senseless wasteland. Some of us may well have actually put ourselves there through our own artificial means in this ISO time. ISO drinking. ISO gambling. ISO entertaining. Friend, it's time to put these things off and open our hearts to the purposeful filling of the Spirit. No longer get caught up in these things that, that are the false euphorias and the things that we're doing in a hurry. I feel bad. I need to feel good in a hurry so I will do these frivolous things. And I'm going to feel like even more waste, more of a wasteland as a result after the fact. No, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled by singing songs of praise. Be filled by falling on our knees and seeking encounter. By willing to go, God, I've been so far from you because I've been caught in my ISO things but wherever you are, I need to find you now.
be filled by getting back into community and doing this together. Where the world sees the temple of the Holy Spirit alive and well. It's true the church never closed. But I tell you what, when our doors on the building closed, the rest of the community fell into a hush over that. Even if we never open our doors again, or even if things go backwards, or even if there's second waves, we still need to be willing to understand that we've got to demonstrate this filling somehow, to stay in community somehow, to, to be able to reach out to our community somehow, to let them know that the church is still alive and well somehow. Let's not get caught up in these other things to make ourselves feel good in a hurry. Instead, let's open up to the Spirit in our life. Let's bow in prayer.